my guest is one of the most remarkable thinkers, I believe, on the planet. He is Dr. John Casti, C-A-S-T-I, and uh, he is a world-renowned scientist in complexity and system theory and a futurist who is visiting the United States from his home in Vienna, Austria. He is the co-founder of the X-Center, a research institute focusing on human-caused extreme events, also known as X-Events in complexity science, and how to anticipate them. Earlier in his career, he was a senior scholar at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analyst in Vienna, where he headed up the Project on Extreme Events in Human Society. He has also worked as a scientist and a scholar at the Santa Fe Institute and on theoretical uh, physics and adaptive systems. He has also been a professor at Princeton University, University of Arizona, and New York University. And he is the author of X Events, The Collapse of Everything, which outlines a variety of different scenarios of human-caused catastrophes that I believe are on the horizon. Before we go to Dr. Castai and I, welcome to our program. Let me just do a little overarching view of my concerns. We know that solar storms are coming, but that's something we cannot um, prepare completely for, but we can make some effort. But we didn't cause those solar storms. We also know that there is a shifting in the Teutonic plates under the Pacific Rim. It is already manifested in massive earthquakes at, at um, Fukushima in Japan, also in Chile a year and a half ago, in uh, Australia, in Queensland, and um, in the Philippines. But now it's time that that's going to be happening, according to the scientists, uh, anywhere from Alaska down through Oregon, Seattle, um, Washington, and possibly Northern California. But I don't see that we are making that a major issue. I don't see that we're preparing for it. Also, we know that there are an increasing number of hurricanes, tornadoes, massive amounts of problems when it comes to torrential rains, extreme heat, and extreme cold. Extremes in everything, which are now becoming the new norm. Recently, a large group of individuals from multiple backgrounds were involved in demonstrating against gas hydrofracking in New York State. As of today, the governor of New York, Cuomo, is now going forward to permit gas hydrofracking in the poorest counties bordering uh, Pennsylvania. Now, these are counties with extreme high unemployment levels, and those are counties most likely to say yes because of some financial incentive on the part of the gas hydrofracking industry. We now are able to associate gas hydrofracking in Iowa, Wyoming, and, uh, for example, in Arkansas with increases in earthquakes. So I'd like for you to, at some point, to address the issue that these are things we could impact but choose not to. So I'm interested in your perspective of what we're doing that could lead to catastrophic disasters that were not being discussed at all, like all the cities where people are moving to in the West, and yet these don't have water, and they won't have water. They're out of water. They're running out of water. So it's not, will there be a crisis there when they lack water? But uh, why aren't people being told about this? In 16 states, they're just not sustainable for the future. That's a catastrophic event. Not telling anyone who lives on the ocean that the oceans are rising and they should be considering their next move in an appropriate and timely manner. That's not being discussed. So these are the issues we're going to discuss. Once again, nice to have you with us today, Dr. Casti. Thank you very much, Gary. I'm very happy to be here. Most of our listeners will be unfamiliar with the complexity and systems theory. Although I've not uh, avoided this, I have had programs on this. I've had scholars, uh, even from the Santa Fe Institute on, such as uh, Professor Stuart Kaufman on, uh, who at one time I believe you work with. But I feel a little background into the science of complexity is necessary and to define what is meant by human-caused extreme events or ex-events. And then, if you would please, juxtapose this way of looking at human-based systems 
such as our financial system, the multitude of technologies that we rely upon, with the simpler models of cause and effect that are determinist and reductionist, yet nevertheless dominate the ways we look at the world, particularly in our government and our corporation. The forum is yours. Thank you. Uh, first of all, to talk about ex uh, complex systems and what do we mean by a complex system. In general, we're talking about a collection of rather simple objects like billiard balls or electrons or some uh, uh, could be individual uh, people in an economy. And how completely counterintuitive and surprising behavior can emerge when you put these simple objects into interaction with each other. The interactions themselves all of a sudden create a system. You don't have a system if you have just isolated individuals, but the system is in the interactions, and those interactions can give rise to things like uh, stock market uh, crashes or to uh, um, highway uh, crashes. Uh, traffic jams, and so on. So the kinds of systems that we deal with in everyday life, and all of the ones that you mentioned, infrastructure systems like electric power, communication, uh, transportation, and so on, they all involve the interactions of lots of individual elements, and those interactions are the basis of complexity. Now, the issue of how complexity manifests itself in the systems that we most care about is a very interesting and not very well studied uh, topic up to now. And my book, X Events, really makes the argument that all extreme events, whether they're financial, whether they're pandemics, whether they're uh, electric power grid failures or whatever, ultimately stem from what I call complexity overload that in the system, the system has a certain level of complexity, degrees of freedom of action, if you like. And in general, the more degrees of freedom the system has, the greater its complexity level is. And these systems are in interaction with another system, I'll call it the regulatory system, the system that's supposed to keep this complexity from exploding off into the stratosphere. And when the level of complexity of the target system, the transportation system or financial network, when the regulatory system complexity level is too low, then you have a complexity gap between the, between the system and its regulator. And the only way that the system can continue to function in a harmonious fashion is if that gap is not too big. The complexity of the regulator has to roughly be equal to the complexity of the system, otherwise the system goes out of control. And as that complexity grows, as that gap gets bigger and bigger, it's like stretching a rubber band. At some point, you feel the tension in your arms as you're stretching it, and at some point, uh, it snaps, it breaks. And that crash, if you want to call it that, that's essentially what I mean by an extreme event. It's kind of a metaphor for an extreme event. And it's very difficult to predict exactly where the moment is when that crash will happen. But you can certainly say you're getting into the neighborhood, you're getting into the danger zone when that band is stretched to its elastic limit. And so in my book, X Events, I take this picture and basically tell a lot of stories ranging from uh, things that we're familiar with, like shifts in geopolitical structures and financial markets, to uh, the development of killer diseases, to nuclear holocaust, to the loss of uh, fresh water and electric power, and a variety of other things in between, to illustrate how this complexity gap, this complexity overload, arises. and. What is it that we can do about it? Now, you've, you've, you've posed that question. What is it that we can do about it? Well, there, there, there's only one thing that you can do about it, and that is narrow that gap. Equalize. Narrow that gap. And what does that usually uh, imply? It means that the high-complexity system in some way has to be downsized. You have to, or the low-complexity system has to be raised up. 
Uh, I think the second is a rather dangerous pol uh, policy because it, it allows you to continue this complexity overload process. But if you don't voluntarily downsize, and unfortunately human beings in general are not very, uh, it's not a very popular activity to downsize your life. People don't want to downsize their life. They don't want to down downsize their societies. If they don't, then at some point that rubber band will be stretched too far. And nature's way, or in this case human nature's way, of resolving that gap is to give you an extreme event. Now, at, in the short term, this is almost always seen as rather undesirable. We don't want to have a Fukushima. In fact, I was in Japan a couple weeks ago giving a series of lectures, and the people in the audience, uh, I told them, I said, you know, right now, a year after the fact, you guys are probably pretty depressed. You know, you see all this damage and, and loss of life and property damage and so on, and you probably think that Fukushima was the worst thing that ever happened to Japan. And I'll tell you that I think you're right in the short term, but extreme events are always a problem and an opportunity. And I'd be willing to bet if I went to sleep today for 20 years, when I wake up, you will say, you know, this was the best thing that ever happened in Japan, not the worst. And why is that the case? And you can already see signs of it in Japan today, that that dramatic shock to the system is forcing all sorts of changes throughout the whole Japanese social structure, political structure, economic structure, psychology. Everything is, is up for grabs because Japan has now been blasted into a completely new orbit. And those kind of changes that are taking place today in Japan could not take place if you had a kind of, we're thinking of a gradual uh, designed change, a kind of morphing from one society to another. It, it doesn't, life, you, in theory, it could happen that way. But in fact, in actual fact, in actual real life, it never happens that way. You can't get these major changes that are needed in a, a social structure by gradual evolutionary change. You need to have revolutionary change. An extreme event is the catalyst for revolutionary change. So they shouldn't be seen as something that you necessarily want to always avoid. But they're very unpleasant in the short term. But in the longer term perspective, they open up new degrees of freedom. So does a heart attack, a stroke, and cancer if your lifestyle and attitude had contributed to it and nothing else would deter you from those bad choices until a catastrophic X event. Yeah, a wake-up call. And then people say it's the best thing ever happened. It saved my life yeah, yeah. by threatening my life. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you a series now of overarching issues. Please address whichever ones you feel comfortable with, all right? Okay. I, I fully understand the idea that of imbalance and that there's a compensation is one group of society gains more power and with that wealth and control over resources another group loses it you know it's almost of equal proportion the trouble is they were never equal to begin with now take a look if you would please at bubbles right now I predicted a year ago that we would have a gas two years ago a gas hydrofracking bubble I looked at all the geological surveys that showed we had more than enough natural gas to meet all of our needs for natural gas. But some smart people got together and figured out, why don't we convince people with money, lawyers, doctors, engineers, the professional class, some investors, put your money into natural gas. Why? Because it's only about $2.5 million to put a well in and get it operational. Lots of gas coming out of it. And we'll get that price up to, let's say, $22 a a cubic foot, whatever it is. So hundreds of thousands of wells were, were drilled. What happened was very little pro public protest. People didn't allow their lands to be used or didn't know that they didn't own the mineral rights under their lands. People who buy homes should always check, do you own mineral rights? If you don't, don't buy it because whoever does can buy the law, can put a drill rig right beside your house. You can't do a darn thing about it. In any case, now the bubbles imploded. The price is down to about $2.25. The cost of extraction is $5. They're losing billions of dollars. In fact, that big company that was on Chesapeake was on 60 Minutes. They are in a mess right now. In any case, there is an extreme event. 
we are destroying the environment, destroying our water supply, polluting underground aquifers that cannot be unpolluted, uh, adversely affecting property values. We paid no attention when the bubble was going up in the crisis. And as you say, when you stretch till you break it, you know, to you, to, we stretched not realizing what are we doing this for? It was unmitigated greed. Now it's coming back down, but still they're wanting to do even more of this and they haven't learned any lessons. No one's cleaning up the mess they made. In fact, in Ohio, the law is you don't have to clean up the mess. Go ahead and drill. Drill, baby, drill. And if there's pollution in our water or streams, we'll, we, the taxpayers, will clean it up. So that's an issue that's important. Nuclear is very important to me. The Obama administration has given this year over $36 billion to support nuclear. Yet nuclear is not cost-effective. It is not emission-free. It is not a clean or green energy. It's extremely dangerous. We have 104 of these plants. They want to build more plants. The Chinese are going to build 44 new plants, nuclear plants. So at some point, it's not will there be another Fukushima, because Fukushima is still Fukushima. There's still plant four. It's still radiating radiation. I just spoke with the leading environmental activist from Japan yesterday. And this person said, this woman said, for the first time, Japanese women are going into the streets. They have never done this in, in a lifetime because our culture doesn't allow women to go to the streets and protest, nor does it allow men to go to the street and protest against the government and corporations, nor does it allow employees in the corporations. You never see strikes in Japanese corporations. She said, now the word is spreading. Ah, spreading. There is a counterbalance. There is a contraction against an expansion. It, now they've closed down all the nuclear power plants in Japan, but they haven't done a worldwide event to bring in all the top people and encase that. Get, take those spent fuel rods and put them in solid steel and concrete encasements to protect them. If Fukushima number 4, which is very wobbly, has a Category 6 earthquake, it will fall. That will set off the largest cataclysmic event in civilized society ever. We will all be polluted by that, and they'll be devastated. Is the government doing anything? No. The power company? No. The government's now taken over control. So that's an event. That's an extreme event that right now is man-made because we're not honestly addressing its solution because it would have political uh, and financial repercussions. So those two are important. Then one last one. Right now, there's a small group of people headed by Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and Monsanto and the political operatives that it has influenced to control the world's food supply by genetic engineering. Even last week at the G8 summit, there was a commitment of $3 billion to get Africa to go genetic engineering, supposedly to save it from famine. But every study shows that sustainable agriculture is not genetic engineering. And Vandana Shiva, who I'm sure you've heard of in India, who is the uh, who is probably the most important voice in the uh, sustainable movement, brought to our attention 250,000 dead farmers drinking pesticides because they lost their farm because their genetic engineered cotton crops died. So on the one hand, just when we need sustainable agriculture and we need to lower our, our, our pesticides and energy and animal production, all this, we have a big push by those in power to take us to the extreme. Hamburger supersized on every plate. Kids that are obese and diabetic, no problem. Americans who are obese and diabetic and heart disease, no problem. Just keep eating. Supersizing the food, genetically engineering the food, polluting the environment, at the extremes where the environment can't take it, population out of control, wanting our diet, can't support it, and a relatively dynamic, small movement trying to create some semblance of balance to bring that power back, reasonableness back. Could you address the, any of these, please? Well, I'll be happy to say something. Uh, I think that all of the cases that you've just now mentioned are excellent uh, illustrations of what I would call complexity overload, where you continue, when you face a problem, uh, and let me describe it to you in the sense of societies or civilizations, if you like, because this, this is something that I did address directly in my book. Um, 
if you have a civilization or society faces problems, the default way of solving the problem or addressing the problem is create another layer of, I'll call it bureaucracy, whose design is to deal with the problem. Uh, we know that for ex a good example here in America was uh, after 9-11, uh, to address the problem of terrorists on U.S. soil, the government created a bureaucracy. It has a name called the Department of Homeland Security. And that bureaucracy is certainly going to be with us long after the last terrorist has gone off to terrorist heaven. Uh, and this is a common practice uh, throughout history complexity level after complexity level after complexity level to deal with problems as they turn up. The problem, the real problem, is that at some point all of the resources of the society are being consumed maintaining the current structure. There's no room left, there's no resources left to deal with the next problem that comes online. And so the next problem doesn't get dealt with. And the problem after that doesn't get dealt with. And pretty soon you have a huge imbalance between the, the society and I'll call it the regulatory proceed processes because the regulatory processes don't have resources to deal with. And at some point, this gap gets too big and off the edge you go. And a very well-known um, archaeologist in Utah named Joseph Tainter wrote a book about this whole process. In fact, it was a motivation for me when I read his book some time ago to actually start thinking in these, in these ways. His book is called The Collapse of Complex Civilization, published in 1988. And Tainter says in his book that only one society in history that he knows of ever managed to escape this crash. That was the Byzantine Empire. Uh, and they avoided this problem by voluntarily downsizing. So all of the illustrations that you've just now mentioned, they all suffer from this very same process of in, uh, complexity overload. Uh, genetic engineering, uh, too much uh, drilling for natural gas, and the other one, uh, nuclear, the nuclear mm -hmm. problem. They, they are all illustrations of too, much, too little understanding chasing ever-increasing amounts of complexity. And my prediction is not a very happy one. I think every one of those cases will ultimately crash and burn uh, because they're not paying attention to the second half of the problem, namely the regulatory aspect. How do, how do you make sure that you keep these uh, complex systems in balance with uh, the regulation? Uh, they're not paying any attention to Ray. In fact, it's just the opposite. They do everything possible to push down the complexity. They of the control the regulation. Well, that, so so they like governments. But Dr. Casti, is it yeah. not also true, going back to your original statement, that you have a problem and you put a disproportionate amount of your resources on solving it, so you create a bureaucracy yeah. on top of a bureaucracy? That, to me, does not. Uh, persuades the idea that they are actually solving the original problem. I just see a compounding of the problem. I don't see a resolution of the problem. Well, it, 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 you're, I think you're in most many cases, I wouldn't say all cases, many cases, you're completely correct. Uh, you give the surface appearance of solving a problem, like with the uh, Department of Homeland Security. I don't think it's solving any problems. Uh, but it's creating a bureaucracy that at some point takes on a, a life of its own. And it's very difficult to get rid of once you have, like getting malaria. You know, once you have it, you, you, you might be able to take some medicine to, to survive, but you never get rid of it. And, the, and you're weakened. So the next problem that comes along, you're in worse shape to deal with than the first time. And so this, this is a, uh, but it seems to be uh, human nature's way. The, the historical record is very clear on this point. So it's not like uh, you, uh, it's not to say that you could not perhaps do something in a different way. As I said, according to Tainter, the Byzantine Empire managed to uh, figure out that we have to downsize. Or maybe they didn't really figure it out. Maybe it was just they were just lucky. Maybe they were forced into downsizing in some way. But this, uh, the usual method is a, an extreme event, and the usual extreme event is typically a war. 
of some kind or a major disease like bubonic plague or something of that kind. It's not very pleasant. It's not very nice in the short term. But in the longer term perspective, it opens up possibilities that would not have been there otherwise. So it's a a two-edged sword. Like in China's case, in Brazil and India, growing between 9 and 13% a year for over a decade. Now it's about half that or less. In the next two years, it'll go down even half of that because they're using up resources. They've used up their own resources in their own country. You go to China today, one-third of, one-fourth of China is a desert and growing. The fastest growing desert in the world is in China. Mm-hmm. And with all their technologies, and there's a lot in brilliant science, they hadn't put into place the thought that if we need to feed people and we need to house people, maybe we should do it in balance with nature. Now there are those who are thinking about that, but it's too late to stop the desertification. As a result, they have 17 mega cities with 65 million homes there that no one's living in. And based on where they're at, probably no one will be because they've used up the water. Mm-hmm. So. At some point, is it likely, and I realize this is merely a subjective projection, that when we look around at countries that like India, that they'll run out of water so substantially, nothing completely, but so substantially, the turbidity and pollution in the water they have, which if you've been to the Ganges, it's so polluted, you wonder how those people can go in and bathe in it or you know, clean anything. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, clean, you wouldn't clean your laundry in a septic system. When you try to bathe in the country, it's a septic system. You see percolation everywhere because the water plants don't work. The water purification plants don't work 80% down most of the time. I'm doing a whole film on this now. So at what point do the people who are driving the new industrial complex, the manipulation of labor and services, in a completely insular fashion, away from all the poverty, you'll see... In Mumbai, you'll see gigantic skyscrapers that look out over unlimited amounts of slum, where you have to go through the slums to get into your gated community. Will we become a nation, America, where we have nothing but green zones, much like they will in India, where those who can afford to will live in that area that does have water purification, will have food and quality of life. And you live outside of that. You don't have that card to get in. You don't have that pass to get in. You have to live in a Mad Max film somewhere in that wasteland. Do you see that possibility happening in the United States or other countries? Yeah, it sounds actually what you've just now described sounds a lot like South Africa today, except in South Africa, it's not the water, it's crime. Uh, but it's the same principle at work, that there's something outside of these compounds that's very dangerous and very uh, deadly, actually, and you have to live inside the compound if you want to have what we would uh, think of as a uh, kind of a normal way of life. But I, I'm very sympathetic to what you said about the problem with fresh water. I think this is in, in one of the chapters in my book, X Events. This is one of the major extreme events waiting to happen, to, waiting to happen to us in the West. In our it's lifetimes. It's already happened in, um, in many parts of Asia, as you point You're out. You're talking about now, not I'm 20, about 100 years next, ago. No, I'm not talking about 100 years from now either. I'm talking about in, in my lifetime, which is pro- measured probably in a couple of decades. This is not, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But on the other hand, it's not going to happen in the 22nd century either. Uh, we're okay. talking about uh, a decade or two. And when is when will people start taking it seriously? Uh, probably not until the day when you turn on the faucet in your kitchen and a bunch of raw sewage comes uh, comes out instead of uh, fresh water. That's happening in Africa and in India now. Yeah, yeah. You know that for the past 25 years, more than anything else, farming in India has been water farming. Yeah, people who yeah. take a a drill, drill down into a well, pump out all the water into one of these like 5,000-gallon containers on the back of a truck, take it and sell it to people who had no water because the government didn't care about the 6 million people who came into the city, one city we're talking about, Mumbai, and didn't plan for them, no electrical grid. So all the electricity is is illegal and, and all haphazard. No water, no proper septic system. 
And as a result, it just became the world's largest shanty town. Mm. And so people said, oh, I'll make money off selling water. The trouble is, you have a couple hundred people, a couple thousand people, no problem. What if you have millions of people doing it and that's what's happened? Then all that land now no longer has the water that was there for the yeah, crops. Yeah. So now you got desertification. You can't grow anything. And now the cost of water goes up and the poor can't get it. This is also true in South America where they tried to privatize water. And that brings in globalization. So then in comes a major corporation. No problem. We'll give you water. You have to pay for it. Now you have, you've stretched that even further. The resources that are available go only to a small group of people. Those who need the resources can't afford them and are exploited. There has to be a breaking point everywhere. I just don't believe that we're willing in our society in the United States, in England, in Europe, to acknowledge what happens when globalization's blowback occurs, when the downside, dark side of globalization, you've exploited, you've used resources, you have not compensated or balanced out, nor have you returned the resources and your planting of trees or anything. You simply did it to its dead. What is the likely outcome then? Oh, the likely outcome is very unpleasant. Uh, and certainly unpleasant in the short term because there are all sorts of extreme events, in this case definitely human-caused extreme events, that are waiting to basically send you to a way of life that nobody wants to voluntarily accept. And this is basically the, the, the crux of the matter. No voluntary downsizing in order to try and bring this complexity gap back into a more harmonious uh, a level. And so, uh, of course, again, I'll restate it that in the longer term perspective, uh, this is this is not such, it will not be seen, you know, if you write the history a few hundred years later uh, as especially uh, uh, negative. In fact, the people will say, hey, it was, wasn't too bad. It forced people to adopt sustainable agriculture, sustainable energy supply, and so on and so forth. That was uh, something waiting to happen for a long time. But it can only happen when you blast the, the society into a completely new orbit. You can't gradually move into a new orbit. It has to be blasted into it. And that's what the extreme events do. But we're not prepared for the blast. No, the blast, you're not prepared we're for prepared, it. We're prepared for sitting down with a big bowl of ice cream, about a two-pound pizza, and watching Dancing with the Stars. Or someone's got talent. But we're not willing to look at any of these. So what do you do? What is the message, the takeaway message? I'm not talking about the more independent, progressive-minded people who are looking finally, after having removed themselves frequently painfully, from the true belief of their ideology and the ideologues that have guided them, and just finally seeing a mirror that reflects a real picture back instead of distorting it. Those people right now are doing things. We have more people buying local organic uh, produce than ever before in American history. 65 million people are buying organic produce. We have more people exercising and taking care of themselves. We have more people getting their money out of commercial banks, stopping shopping at Walmart, and start to looking at, if you look now, every piece of clothes I'm wearing is made in the USA with union labor. I don't buy, I won't wear any garment on my body for my shoes, to my belt, anything that wasn't made with fair labor. In other words, a living wage. I won't buy stuff from Bangladesh or China that I know is exploitive. There are a lot of people like me out there. I'm not going to go into a McDonald's. I'm not going to drink a Coca-Cola. I'm not going to eat French fries. I'm, I'm not going to watch their television. I'm not going to. I refuse to. I'd rather stick an ice pick in my eye than watch a reality show. And I think that's what you're doing intellectually when you do that. So there are a lot of us, there are millions of us in the United States who are getting off the grid, literally getting off the grid. My house is 100% solar with backup systems, and I have my own water. But I could have gone community water, uh, city water. I chose not to. Was it expensive initially? Initially it was. Now it's not. So there's two groups. There's those of us by the tens of millions. I want to acknowledge them. Because there's no one acknowledging them in the official media, left or right. There's no one inviting people like you, progressive thinkers, into those boardrooms to talk or into halls of Congress to talk because you're not compromisable. You're not going to sell your soul. You're not going to pimp for anyone. All right? That's, I'm sorry to be crude, but that's the reality. Unless I'm mistaken, that's who you are. 
because when I read your book, that book wasn't a book that any publisher would have willingly published unless they knew that there was a group of people left out there that still had an IQ above 13, all right? Because most books are written for illiterates. Because we choose to dumb down, it is not a natural source. We at once were inspired. You take a kid in the classroom from the 1800s and they could out-articulate a child today easily because of the attention to understanding and the context it was in. That said, then we had this large group of people, about 85% of people who not only don't want to change anything, are highly ideological, who insist upon their right to do foolish things, even when they've been shown and told that it's not in their best interest, who don't care about the sustainability of the planet, don't care about animals, don't care about rights, don't care about human rights, could care less about South Africa, couldn't even spell apartheid, let alone understand who helped lead the, the effort to get it out, don't even understand our own civil rights movement outside of Martin Luther King. I doubt that the average American give you five civil rights leaders and then ask them to mention you know, five women civil rights leaders and then mention five uh, 18th century feminists. They can't do it. We have no context of history. Our history today is who won the ball game last night. So what do you do with 85% who are used as the basis for the political power that keeps both the official corporate Democrat and liberals in power, that keeps the media, official media in power, that keeps our official scientific community, medical community, educational community, the official ones I'm talking about, in power. Hence, almost anything that challenges the official reality is negated. How do you deal with that, sir? Okay. Now, first of all, I'll say right up front, I don't have a magic formula or a magic bullet for that matter to address. I understand. I'm just asking for your opinion, which I I value. What I actually believe is, first of all, you're, of course, in a minority of people, the people who have voluntarily decided to downsize their life. And in, in, in downsize in the sense of rejecting a large number of alternatives like drinking Coca-Cola or watching reality TV that all of a sudden you just don't do. It's not part of your spectrum of possible activity. So in this sense, you have a less complex life than the people who have this large list of possible actions that they might take. And that's a, that's a good thing in this case because this complexity overload will kill. Complexity kills, ultimately, if you don't have some measure of uh, methods of actually regulating it. Now, how do you get regulation into this other 85% of the population? Uh, first of all, I don't, I don't think most of those people actively reject the idea of downsizing their life. They don't even think about it. It's not like a conscious decision that they've made to downsize. They don't even think about it. And how do you get, uh, I'm actually a little bit pessimistic in this respect of being able to somehow educate them into thinking about it and saying, oh, yes, I should not watch TV or I shouldn't drink the Coca-Cola or I shouldn't do this or something else. Because all of these things that you've mentioned basically involve not doing something that you could do. And I, th- I think that what ultimately will resolve this matter, because it can't last forever, is something dramatic and not very nice in the short term. It could be a war. It could be a massive pestilence. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, one or another of them will start riding through, and the problem will be addressed. It will be addressed in a rather brute force and, and not very elegant manner, and a lot of people will suffer, and they'll suffer a lot, but that's the way of nature. In, in general, nature doesn't care about what humans want or don't want. Nature just says, this is what, I'm, this is what you are going to get. Uh, now, so the, a question in my mind would be, if you believe this, let's say, proto-scenario, it's not very specific, but if you believe this, how can you take action today as an individual to ensure that not only are you a survivor of this event, whenever it comes and whatever it might be, but perhaps even a beneficiary of it. Uh, And in order to actually be more specific in that regard, you have to have a little bit clearer vision of what the event actually might be, what your particular circumstances are. Because, for example, a lot of people who live in a place like New York City in Manhattan in some apartment somewhere, they have a lot fewer things that they might do than somebody who lives out in the countryside. 
Uh, so if, if I had to do consulting, uh, I can't give any general prescription other than to say it w- it's a good thing to downsize your life. Uh, but the idea that, well, if if I do it and my neighbor does it and the guy across the street does it, all of a sudden it's going to catch on, I'm pretty pessimistic about that. I don't think it's going to catch on. And I don't think that it's, it, its failure to catch on is due to uh, the evil machinations of some big corporation. I think human nature is not in the business of downsizing unless they're I don't, forced, I don't, forced I don't. I agree do with it. that. I don't, I don't ever suggest that anyone in a corporation wakes up today figuring out how they can make us more sick. Uh, I I just believe that people wake up every day and go about doing what ensures their own survival and growth and prosperity. Yeah. But in doing that, you can have a moral balance. You can say, can I make money? Can I succeed with a product or service without it harming people or the environment? And clearly the answer is yes, because we have millions of things that we are offered that help and encourage us. But then there are those people who have a toxic drug like Vioxx that they knew was going to kill people. They knew that. It came out in trial. And it killed 60,000 people to 400,000. The number has gone up based upon some new statistics. But at the end of that whole process, the collapse of that was, and this is concerning to me, a hundred to 150,000 heart attacks and strokes, but there was no follow-up to see how many of those died. I filmed a professor of medicine in my prescription for disaster film on that, and he taught medicine to college students, uh, medical students, and he said that he was embarrassed more than anything that he didn't do his homework about prescribing a class of drugs, COX-2 inhibitors, Vioxx being one and Celebrex being another, that he should have known better. But he himself had been influenced by the drug company advertising and the detailed people. And then he found himself with a heart attack. Then he found himself without an income. Then he found himself with a for sale sign. I was there the day he hammered the for sale sign in his yard. There, I'm filming him. And then he sells his house. Then he can't get another job because he is sick. Uh, you know, he has the residual effect. They paid $5.85 billion and never had to admit guilt. No one went to jail. The reputation was not in any way uh, burnished with a negative. They had no moniker saying criminal activity, nothing. So my question then is, if we have oil companies, gas companies, Wall Street banks, Morgan Stanley, Chase, um, uh, and, and uh, all these other major financial institutions, lobbying groups, ph- ph- pharmaceutical companies, all regularly engaging in criminal activity, how do I know? I hired two scholars for a year. That's all they did. When I walked around the office, some of the people you didn't know were scholars and residents. That's all they do is look for the truth. We found over 200,000 lawsuits had been settled by people on Wall Street, farm, um, uh, Wall Street firms, and then another 100,000 suits have been settled by pharmaceutical companies, just pharmaceuticals. The people have the easiest access to Congress, the media, the talking heads, the think tanks who are given the highest positions, but they all have, were serial offenders. You and I, if we ever committed the crimes they did, we would never be given any credibility or invited anywhere to do anything. Yet they, no matter what crime they commit, they pay a fee and they're immediately their reputation is clean. They're, they're Teflon proof. So based upon the concept you've outlined here, the X events or the extreme events, the extreme events of creating bubbles that burst, exploiting people, products that kill, exploiting the environment, dangerous environmental uh, catastrophes due to exploiting like nuclear facilities. At the end of it, they never pay. They never learn. They just keep going on. They fell up. How then does that reconcile with the idea that we get something so bad that it implodes on itself I only at this moment see something so bad that whatever does implode, implodes on all those people who did not cause it, cannot afford it, but are victims of it. Could you share in your final thoughts with us how we understand what happens to systems that are able to control through the body politic and the legal system and the media their own image and the consequences of our reaction to them? Well, I think that, again, I'll go back to this historical pattern that I mentioned earlier, that civilizations 
perhaps like the U.S. civilization, if you like, uh, they ultimately pass away from the center stage of history. It's the it's all part of a very it's a long term process. There's no question about that, and the the disappearance is never pleasant or voluntary. Usually, society it doesn't matter whether it was the British or the French or uh, it will be the Chinese. The Chinese have already been on center stage and have uh, vacated. They they have to be dragged kicking and screaming off the of center stage. Nobody ever voluntarily leaves. And one of the way the main reason why they have to leave is exactly what we've been talking about: too much complexity, too great an attention to I'll call it economic efficiency. Uh, and got out of balance with what I would call measures to maintain the resilience of the society. And the civilization uh, says, uh, turns out the light and the party's over. Uh, and that will happen in the U.S. too. And, and many would say, and I would probably join in with them, that that process is already underway. Uh, it, it's not a nice process, and it moves in fits and spurts, but the process is very clear. And I, I'm, I'm, I think one should take some uh, satisfaction in recognizing the fact that if you are forced out of uh, the spotlight, that in general, the countries or the civilizations that leave the spotlight, they end up being much better off than the ones that took over afterwards. And look for at, a period of time. For, yeah, look at the, the European, the British, and uh, uh, French uh, uh, societies. They are uh, German, Germany after the Second World War. We th they were big losers. They weren't at center stage. But in fact, uh, they were much better off being a loser than being a winner. Uh, in the longer, in the broader perspective. And uh, Russia today is certainly better off than it was during the time of the, the communist experiment. So one can take a certain measure of, of consolation in the fact that just being kicked off center stage, even by your own stupidities, uh, is, is not necessarily the end of the game. It just moves into a new phase. I appreciate that. That's a very profound insight, and I thank you for that. My final question for you today, I am very optimistic about half of the future. I'm very pessimistic or pragmatic about the other half. I believe that those in power who are corrupt will remain corrupt even when they're out of power. Their power will simply shift. It won't have the same uh, capacity to create policies it has in the past. I believe that there is an emergence of an independent-minded group of individuals who are just now coalescing. Um, you have uh, Gary Johnson, the former governor, who's a libertarian candidate, who's got some very good policies. You've got Jill Stein of the Green Party, very good. You've got Rocky Anderson, very good. And you have others. And I see not any of them individually, and you've got the requiem for uh, Ron Paul supporters. You've got 12 million young idealistic college students out there that unfortunately and stupidly and to their own uh, discredit uh, and hubris, the left has kicked under the bus. You see, if you don't meet the left's ideological uh, needs, they have nothing to do with you. Instead of looking at some, gee whiz, I'd like to have 12 million people that I could share some thoughts with who could make some positive changes in their own lives and then help be a part of the policymaking shift to the future. But I see a coalescing into an independent movement. It'll go in the streets. It'll go in editorials. It'll go on blogs. It'll go on documentaries. It'll go in a mass under-the-radar revolution. Before those in power realize that people are getting off the grid and making changes, so many will have done so that you can't arrest them all. You can't harass them all. You can't impede, though I have a program uh, coming up today with some of the leading scholars in the world on what happens when we don't pay attention to all these laws being passed that interfere with our freedoms and choices. And if people in power really were comfortable with their own power and what they're doing, they wouldn't need all these. It shows that they're afraid of that backlash. They're afraid of what's happening in Greece and Italy and, and in Canada. So my question then is, do you see that it, groups can work together in whatever way that they understand to at some point force those who are in power and are living the extreme examples, creating the extreme dangers, to no longer give them their 
vote, money, and support, in which case that causes that group that has that to have less of that power. My final thought is, right now I consider the greatest financial issue in the world are derivatives. There are currently over $600 trillion in derivatives and credit default swap positions out there. It's just insane. And yet we're not addressing this at all, anywhere. Your thoughts? Okay. Well, first of all, what you described about the 12 million uh, people uh, who are sort of, I'll say, in in the counter movement to the uh, power structure, this uh, actually, as I was listening to you, it sounded to me, I was thinking, gee, this sounds a lot like what's happened in North Africa over the last year or two, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in, in ongoing still in Syria and so on, is a collection of new people somehow coalescing and saying, we've had enough. This government is, has got to go. And of course, if you look at and see how it's had to go, it, it's always the same pattern. There's lots of, there's a, there's a fair amount of violence, in some cases like in Syria, a lot, in other places like Egypt or in uh, Tunisia, less, but the same pattern. But what comes afterwards, now that's the interesting point. It's one thing to say we've got to get rid of these corrupt politicians who've been uh, destroying our society rather than creating it. But then you look and see once they're gone, uh, what happens afterwards? And it's, it's, it's very unclear what happens afterwards. It's not like you just get rid of the bad guys and automatically you're going to have a nice, healthy, happy uh, society. It doesn't work that way. Uh, in some cases, it might end up being, you say, gee, I'd sure like to have the bad guys back. At least we had a little bit more order and structure in our Fascism. housing lives. <laughs> yes. Fascism is always present. Yeah. You see it in Egypt now. Well, the Muslim at, Brotherhood what happened took no in, place in the demonstrations. In Iraq. Yeah. Americans thought, well, all we have to do is get rid of Saddam Hussein, and everybody's going to love us, and they're going to uh, have peace and happiness forever after. Well, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and so it's, it's, the idea of engineering societies is a very, I think, uh, it's, it's theoretically attractive, but it never seems to work. Well, at least you've given us an idea of what happens when we don't pay attention at all. Yeah. I'd rather go through a bumpy landing than a crash landing. Yeah. You might and, survive it. Yeah, and we, we, and we can rise from there. Thank you very much for coming on our program today. Dr. John Casty, author of a very important must-read book, X Events, The Collapse of Everything, and his earlier book, Mood Matters. Nice to have you with us. Thank you.